You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We have to remember that the timing and the purpose of God the Father and God the Son are perfectly and divinely calculated, perfectly divinely seeking an outcome. And what is that outcome? It's redemption for sinners. And how is that accomplished? By death on a cross. So the situation of Jesus dying on the cross is not some unlucky or unfortunate timing. And so we'll see God's timing today in these first 13 verses of the 7th chapter We'll see a little bit the the bigger, broader scope of God's timing throughout the whole Bible in the Old Testament. We'll see the broader scope of that timing and how it comes into fruition and fulfillment into the New Testament, the Gospel. And we will see ultimately how God's timing in comparison to our own often surfaces fear. So God's timing in a fallen world. We just concluded chapter 6, this whole, really, this whole speech, this whole dialogue, if you will, about Jesus being the bread of life. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful imagery, a beautiful reality of who Jesus is and what He has done. In fact, it, it shows even how He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how He is the greater bread brought down from heaven, the bread that we are to feast upon. Well, eventually this story, Jesus telling the Jews at Capernaum and even His disciples that they are to eat of His flesh and drink of His blood became one of the most offensive things that He could say. And He went from a megachurch of 5,000 to 15,000, depending on the women and children there, all the way down to 11 disciples plus Judas. Completely lost popularity, if you will. And so time passes... We're about six months later into the fall season, if you will, and we come upon chapter 7. We have to understand John, in writing the Gospel, is not so much worried about chronology as he is about conveying the message of life in Jesus' name. So when you see in verse 7, after this, it's not like, and then immediately after this, Jesus then went to this place. No, it's a sequence, even though... It's six months later. And so the first two verses, really looking into God's timing in the whole of Scripture, specifically the Old Testament. So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, that is, to the south, because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews... Feast of Booze was at hand. Kiddos, you with me, kiddos? If you are with me, say, yeah! Yeah. Yes! Draw a tent. Okay, the word booth is the same word for tent. Okay, so take some time. You can draw a tent. You can draw a lot of tents. Whatever you want to do, just draw a tent, color it in, make it look awesome. So Jesus comes in, the time was the Feast of Booths. This is around the fall season. Feast of Booths comes from the Old Testament. 
I will take us back to and read a couple verses from the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 42 through 43, and it goes like this. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations, so here's the purpose of the feast, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So if we remember and go back to the book of Exodus, Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians and then God delivers them and He brings them into the wilderness. And while they are in the wilderness, he, though they are homeless, if you will, He not only provides them clothing and shoes and food and water, He provides for them little houses, little tents. And so this picture of the Feast of Booze is a reminder to thanksgiving. It's a time of praise, of remembering that God was providing and not only providing by giving us these dwelling places, these tabernacles, which is another word for booth, but God also tabernacled among them in the wilderness. And so this was a big festival of praise. For sure, a huge festival of praise. You see this kind of peppered throughout the Old Testament. It happened after Solomon dedicated the temple. And what a beautiful picture. When he dedicated the temple, what happened? The glory of God came over the temple, right? Consumed it. There we have again, God tabernacling among His people in a permanent location. Now, unfortunately, Israel sinned, went into exile, into captivity. And, but after they came back, after God rescued a remnant of them, you began to see that they picked up this Feast of Booths again. Really that recycling of the same story in the Old Testament where God's people are enslaved and then God rescues them and brings them out. And so again, that story comes out. And so God delivers. He provides. He moves His people out of captivity and then He gives them a place of dwelling while then dwelling among them. So no greater time to celebrate this than when the harvest is fresh and there's good new crops and food to celebrate. It's like Thanksgiving for us in November. right? Most of us, or at least a lot of Americans that I talk to, almost like Thanksgiving more than Christmas. Right? It's because we come together and we have so much food. It's a lot of fun. The family's together. We're thankful. We're praising God. And so this is that sort of celebration. There's nothing that is sad or depressing about this. God has delivered. But let's not forget, in regards to God's timing, not even the Feast of Booths was out of the timing of God. It was in right timing. Let me give one example. If you were to, and you don't have to, jump to Genesis chapter 15. We're talking centuries before Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians. Centuries before the Feast of Booths was even a twinkle in their eye. God says to Abraham in Genesis 15 verses 13 through 16, Then the Lord said to Abram, This is even before he was named Abraham. He was still named Abram. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Talking about Israel and Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. It's talking about them coming out of Egypt, plundering the Egyptians, having all the gold, having all the fabric, the ability to make tents. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, Abram. And they shall come back here. So God is telling Abram, your descendants, long after you're gone, will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so for the Feast of Booths to take place, Abram needed to come. This promise needed to happen. But not only that, the iniquity of the Amorites needed to be complete. It needed to have its fulfillment. Let me put it very simply. When the enemy came in and it seemed like impossibility for God's promises to come about, God would then deliver mightily. So even the evil wickedness of the world has a purpose in playing out the grand plan of redemption. Think of it this way. How do you know what you're, be, what you're being saved to until you first know what you're being saved from? There's a reason that the Feast of Booths is such a big deal because the Israelites, the people of God, know from whom or from what they have been saved or delivered and they know how God has been with them in the process of deliverance and it is worth praising, worth having a feast. And so as we just kind of tap into the first couple verses here, I want you to remember, Christian, that when God saved you, He didn't leave you out on your own. He didn't leave you out on your own. He has provided for you. He has given you dwelling. And not only that, God is dwelling among you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You in your individual body are the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You tabernacle with God because God tabernacles with you. And so don't forget, let this be an encouragement, Christ is always with you. This is why in the Great Commission, Jesus can say those words with all authority and confidence. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because why? This is what God does and God has been doing it since the very beginning. So, yes, the world is a mess. Your marriages are a mess. Your parenting is flawed. Your job is horrible. Your relationships are broken. Politics are going down the drain again. Everything seems shattered and broken. But understand this, that doesn't change what God is doing. The people had reason to praise and give thanksgiving while they were in the wilderness. And they never even got to the promised land. But they had reason. And also remember, you coming to faith was also not an accident. 
It was also not in bad timing. God allowed whatever sinfulness that was going on in your heart to have its time, to have its fullness, and at the right time, God saved you and pulled you out. And now you have reason to rejoice, reason to give thanksgiving, to praise Him. So here's the bad news about the Old Testament. That deliverance from Egypt, the deliverance from the Babylonians, the deliverance from the Persians, the deliverance from uh, the Amorites, the deliverance from them is not enough. It's not enough. There must be something more. And so we move on into God's timing of the Gospel in verses 3-11. through Let me read. So his brothers, this is his biological brothers, Jesus' biological brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? So the timing of the gospel was not yet fully known in this passage. So here we have Jesus' brothers, his biological brothers, sons of his mother Mary, and it seems like their motivation is good, right? Jesus, go make yourself known. Now's the time. I mean, this is a festival where everybody and their mom and aunts and uncles and cousins, everybody is there. Go make yourself known openly. Go get your mega church back. <laughs> but it wasn't just that. It was more specifically pointed to the disciples. Go make yourself known to the disciples. We can't forget that the disciples had a form of disbelief as well. They were, they were confused. They were frustrated. They were grumbling. They were, they were fighting about this understanding of what it, the bread of life actually meant. They too may have been uh, persuaded by or understood this idea of a political Messiah as well. And so they're just really confused. And so the brothers kind of come alongside Jesus. Hey, hey, bro, look, those guys don't get it. We get it. <laughs> Go so that the disciples can actually understand. And so they kind of have this swag about him, like they knew. And then John throws in this parenthetical note, for not even his brothers believed in him. <laughs> and so the brothers think their timing is best. Now's the time. And this sounds very familiar to Jesus' mother. Hey, Jesus, now's the time. Go turn that water into wine. And he rebukes her. Jesus had issues, and not just with Mary. He had issues with his family, 
all over the Scriptures. You see in Matthew, you can note this down and take a look later, but Matthew chapter 13, verse 57. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. These passages show that the family had this inside scoop, this inside knowledge of who Jesus was and what He was supposed to do. And in so doing, they ended up becoming more of a hindrance to Him than a help. It was because of His family that Jesus said when He went back to Nazareth, you know, a, a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown. His family didn't stick up for him. His family was calling him out. So the brothers think they know. They've got the inside scoop. There's understanding. But really, it's all in God's timing. So how do we think about this? There's a lot of kind of illustrations to this. And since I came from a football background, here goes. So think of it this way. There's a couple perspectives. You kind of have the press box perspective, and then you have the on the field, on the sidelines perspective. The disciples, his brothers, people um, in Jesus' time are looking at what God is doing while standing on the field. And if you stand on the field, and it doesn't have to be football, it can be any sport, but when you're standing on the field level or court level or whatever, your perspective, your view of what's going on in the game is limited. You can't see the formations in their fullness. You can't see what's going on as a whole, what's happening as a team. You can only see really right what's in front of you. But there's a reason you have press boxes. There's a reason coordinators are sitting up high in the stadium because they can look at the field and see the entire field all at the same time. They can see the formation of the offense, the formation of the defense. They can actually see which lineman is not blocking correctly, which one is. They can see the weak parts of the other team, the strong parts of the other team, and then they can relay play calls down to the sidelines hoping to take advantage of the other team's weakness. They have the bigger scope of what's going on. And as lacking as that illustration may be, that is the idea of what we're seeing here. The brothers have a sideline perspective and view of what's going on, while Jesus has the press box view. He sees the bigger picture of what's going on. They think this play call, and Jesus is saying, yeah, it's not right now. And so we have the timing of the Bible. And I want to give you one example of this. It comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, which says this In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And if you were to go to the book of Revelation, you'd be reminded of Jesus being the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. These are these press box views of God's timing of redemption and what is taking place. All of these things needed to happen and all of them were determined before time even began that they would happen. So no, Jesus 
is not ready to go at this moment because it would not play out the way that it needed to. And you might be thinking, well, it seems a little contradictory. He's telling his brothers, I can't, I'm, now is not the time for me to go, but then after his brothers go, then he goes. Let's try to dive into that a little bit. A couple things. First, Jesus could not be fully known prior to the cross. Okay? First, Jesus could not be fully known prior to the cross. Let me give you this example from 1 Corinthians. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had it been fully known what Jesus was doing prior to the cross, He would not have died on the cross because they wouldn't have killed Him. I know it seems paradoxical or counterintuitive in our minds. We're like, well, that's a good thing. Well, it's not. Because if He doesn't go to the cross, we don't have redemption. We don't have forgiveness. And we go to hell. So Jesus could not be fully known prior to the cross. And secondly, Jesus could not be fully seen prior to the cross in verses 9-13, through what I'm talking about physically seen in context to this story. He went privately in verse 9. And who was looking for Him? The Jews. The Jews were looking for Him in verse 11. And why? Back to verse 1. Because they wanted to kill Him. Jesus shows up in a public setting with His disciples, with His brothers. They're expecting that to happen. They are going to get Him. They're going to stop Him with the intention of dragging Him out and eventually killing Him. Jesus is not saying, I'm not going to go to the Feast of Booths. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to. Verse 14, He shows up in the temple and starts preaching. But the picture here is that He needs to have this private entrance that would allow Him to get into Jerusalem and eventually into the temple. Because it was not time for him to yet die. Jesus is not afraid of the Jews. He's not scared of what's going on. But there's a purpose. There's a mission. There's a press box view of what needs to happen. And there's a certain play call that needs to take place right now. And ultimately, there's wisdom in this. We're going to see that there's fear in these passages. There's the fear of the Jews by the people. And by the Jews, there's the fear of the crowd. And ultimately, the way that Jesus will come into Jerusalem, He will pit those fears against one another to where He can go ahead and prolong His ministry and not have to worry about to just being killed because the people are in fear of one another. And of course, until its timing is necessary for the cross. He needed to make sure, Jesus did, that all of God's Word came to pass before the cross. This is the other aspect. Jesus is working not for Himself. He's not self-employed here. He's working on behalf of the Father. He's working as the Father works. He's speaking the words of the Father. He's making sure that everything that the Father has said is coming to pass. And if you think 
well, maybe he might miss something. He never misses anything. The most wonderful example is actually in John chapter 20 when Jesus is on the cross. Before he physically dies, Jesus makes sure to fulfill Scripture. Jesus, or John chapter 19, excuse me. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he had said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine in a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Now it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus was going to make sure every single word was fulfilled. Every single book of the Old Testament, every word, every piece of punctuation, everything would be fulfilled and completed in his death on the cross. And so when you begin to see that press box view, you begin to realize, okay, well, maybe the brother's perspective wasn't as good as I thought. And it's not like perhaps it was this insidious uh, sort of um, offer or this insidious idea, but ultimately it was evil. It was a good but evil motivation. Well, how can you make that conclusion? After his brothers said those really good things in verse 3 and 4, yeah, you should make yourself known. You, want it, you need to be known. Go, go, go. John tells us they hadn't believed yet. Meaning they were still blind. Their hearts were still hardened. Anything that would come out of their mouth was from a posture of brokenness, of sinfulness, of twisted understanding of God's Word. As nice or as good as it may seem, it was still not right. And so they were just as lost as the disciples. And here they thought they had the inside scoop. Here they thought they knew Jesus best. And they were just as lost. And Jesus really says some things that are really kind of damning. He says, look, you, you can go. The world doesn't hate you. The world hates me. Basically, brothers, you're still friends with the world. You can go to this festival. You can go to this national event. You can go and hang out. And you're not going to have a single problem because the world likes you. And you like the world. You remember the movie, Remember the Titans? It's a football movie. I have to broaden my illustration some more. There's a scene in there where Sunshine, the quarterback, the white quarterback, he talks to his black teammates after they win a football game and they're just downtown hanging out, having a great time. And so they, Sunshine says, hey, let's go to the bar. And the, t- the, the teammates are like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're in the South. They don't, they don't want us in there. And he's like, no, everything's going to be fine. And so they go inside the bar. And if you remember that scene, if you've seen the movie, you have a white owner and white customers sitting in there. And then all of a sudden, the, the owner comes in saying that they refuse the service of those men. And so they were essentially kicked out for being black And so the next scene is they are all out on the sidewalk and Sunshine was essentially rebuked by his black teammates. He was completely blind to the reality. What he thought was, 
He was doing something good. It was, it was, a, it was a right thing, but man, the timing was completely off. And so this is what the disciples or his brothers think they're doing. We're doing something good, but no, no, no. You don't understand. The timing is not right. It's not now. And so Jesus makes this claim in seven. The world cannot hate you. It hates me, but it doesn't hate you. So Jesus speaks against the evil of the world. And the brothers do not speak against evil. Essentially, the words of the brother are evil, worldly words. Some of us think of the works of demons and the work of Satan is kind of this really Halloween-looking-like insidious sort of verbiage. But it's, it's not all the time. It comes in very subtle ways. It looks like very good, nice things to say. Hey, Jesus, now is the time. But it's not God's timing. Redemption wouldn't happen if He went now. It's a very evil thing. And so their desire for Jesus is not in line with the will of God. Jesus is paying attention to the Father, but His brothers are not. So church, we need to pay attention to God's timing. Be aware that God acts and does things in His own timing. But in God's timing, we have to also be aware that it allows room for suffering. God allows room for suffering in His time. Sometimes we equate suffering or bad things as in, okay, this can't be in the will of God. This isn't possibly God at this. But He allows it. There's purpose for it. Granted, sometimes we see it clearly when hindsight's twenty twenty. but we cannot in the moment, even in a suffering moment, begin to curse God or be angry with Him or think that He has lost His mind and doesn't know what He's doing. Also, in God's timing, He doesn't play to the crowd always. He doesn't always play to popular opinion. God isn't seeking to be popular among the world. God is famous in all of creation with or without the popular opinion of sinners. And so what this means is, we may find ourselves in a situation where we're not liked by a lot of people. Well, we're not in the majority. We're not exactly favored. But that's okay because God is with us. He doesn't pander to the crowd. He doesn't pander to culture. He doesn't pander to what is the next hot thing. But understand this. God's timing is always in line with His Word. It's always in line with His Word. So if you're questioning or wondering what's going on, it is God's Word that makes it very clear what God's timing is and is not and what He is up to. Understand, the Bible is really the press box view of the Gospel and redemption. We have access to understanding what God is up to more than anyone else in history. Especially those before Christ. So church, be grounded in God's Word. Understand what He's saying. Understand what He's doing. 
And then you will begin to understand that God's timing stands above everything. Are you friends, church? Are you friends with the world? If Jesus were to send you out ahead of him, would he be sending you out as a disciple, knowing you would be hated by the world? Or would he be sending you out like his brothers, knowing that the world won't hate you? When you show up places, places where there's a lot of lost people or, or conventions or, I don't know, events or whatever, are you finding yourself that you're going to be a liked person? That you're never going to be opposing anything evil that's going on? You're going to be the person who just fits right in? Or are you going to be the person who brings the good news and the gospel of Jesus to bear in that situation? And there's a, there's a warning here that we see with the brothers talking to Jesus. And it is this, that we need to be careful in what we ask of Jesus on behalf of someone else. It's real easy to think that we are truly seeing Jesus. We've got the right understanding. We know what's going on. But really, in our arrogance, we are completely blind to Him. We think we've got the inside scoop. And are you certain your life is in alignment with God's will? Because even good intentions can be seen as evil. Being good isn't enough. God doesn't call us to do the things that the world themselves can mimic and do. There's something about holiness and righteousness and the blood of Christ that makes us stand out against the world. Makes us look different than the world. So here's the reality. If you don't take the press box view of life and timing, it can ultimately cause fear. Let me give one example. We see everything that's happening politically in our country. We see things that are happening around the world. We have a lot of opinions about the troops being pulled out of Afghanistan and everything involved there. And if we just remain on the field with a field view, we can just become angry, indignant, frustrated, cursing government, cursing plans, cursing everybody. Or we can come back and take a press box view and understand that God is completely in control. It doesn't mean you side with evil and you think evil's okay. And you think you know the evil of politics or the evil strategies of war and everything are, are okay. But what it allows you to do is to step back and realize God has purpose and working going on here. He's not allowing... His, his name to just go completely to the wayside. He's not allowing the church to completely disappear. He's not allowing the kingdom of God to be overtaken by the things of this world. God is not losing. And so when we come back and have the press box view, it helps us then trust in Him. Not be anxious. Not be worried. Not be so unrighteously angry, but maybe righteously angry. And content with where the Lord is has us. And so we need to be careful because if not, 
The things of this world can cause fear. Kids, I forgot to tell you to draw the second thing, didn't I? Yeah, I did. So if you could draw a big, gigantic clock, right? Because we're talking about God's timing, right? So you'll have a tent, a clock. You can put the clock anywhere you want, okay? If you don't like clocks, you can draw an hourglass. That'll be fun. And then after you draw that, right? So I've got your two pictures now. What we have here in this next part of the passage is we have kind of two groups of people kind of arguing or talking about their opinions of who they think Jesus is. So maybe draw a couple stick figures and one person like with the word bubble saying bad, the other person with the word bubble saying good. Like some people think Jesus is good, some people think Jesus is bad. So draw a clock, draw people, one thinking good, one thinking bad. Good luck. God's timing surfaces fear. So, verses 12 through 13. And there was much muttering about Jesus among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, He is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Him. This word muttering, it is a figurative expression. Literally, one who picks up seed. Originally, a reference to birds picking up seed, but figuratively, it is applied to a person who is an information scavenger, one who is not able to say anything worthwhile in view of his miscellaneous collection of tidbits of information. A foolish babbler. I just got a little bit of information here, a little bit of information there about Jesus. And so this is the muttering that is taking place. And so this is kind of the, what we see on social media. It's drawing strong conclusions and strong positions and strong, hey, this is what I stand for on things that we don't fully know and understand because we saw it written on a meme somewhere. We thought, that must be true. And so we're just taking tidbits of information. We're thinking, oh yeah, this is what it must mean. It's foolish talk is what it is. And so really what we have here is the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it's kind of this, well, here's what I think. Here's based off of what I know and what I've heard and what I've seen. One person says, well, he's, he's a good man. He's a good man. I mean, he fed people. You know, he's healing people. He's humble I mean, he could be a good candidate for the nation. There's no doubt about it. Others are going, no, he's bad. He's leading people astray. Yeah, I've heard about his whole cannibalism talk. He wants people to eat him and drink his blood. It's weird, and that's not right. He's leading people from obeying the law of God. That's what he's doing. He's a bad, bad man. So this is... Not the only time people are trying to figure out who He is. We've heard this elsewhere in the Gospels. Who do you say that I am? Right? Jesus is talking to His disciples. Well, some say that you're you know, John the Baptist, you know, reincarnated. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Son of God. 
And so there's all this speculation about who Jesus is. People are just trying to take these snapshots or these tidbits of information and trying to piece it all together and what they know. And they continue to come up with false conclusions and understanding. And it's ultimately because they don't understand the word rightly. And so here, nobody's getting it right. Jesus is not the good man. Jesus is not leading astray. He is the God-man leading in accordance to the will of the Father. Anybody can just be a good man, but not everybody at all ever could be the God-man. But regardless, regardless of if you're in the good crowd or in the bad crowd, both positions are in fear, not of God, but of the Jews. You see that? Their response is, well, here's what I think based off of what I know, but I'm not going to say anything about it because I don't want those guys, that is the Jewish authorities, to be upset with me or think that I'm somehow in a line with him. So there's no fear of God. And this is something I want you to be mindful of and aware of as we continue to work through John's Gospel. Never at any moment is Jesus described as having fear. The people are fearful of the Jews. The Jews are fearful of the people. Jesus is never fearful of them. He goes in with all confidence, with with purpose, trusting in the Father. If anything, Jesus has a healthy fear of the Father. So how is then, church, your knowledge and understanding of Jesus? Like if someone were to ask you who do you think Jesus is, how would you respond? What would you say? It's probably the most important question that you need to answer in your life and really the most important question anybody needs to answer in their life and especially in our culture. I wasn't planning on saying this, but this is kind of a funny story. I'll give the G-rated version, Tony. We were riding in an Uber this week and there was a lady we were riding with and man, she was fun. She was a lot of fun to talk to. And there was all, lot, all sorts of expletives being shared in her storytelling along the way. And at the end of the car ride, I mentioned that we're pastors, and she was like, what? I said, yeah, that's a conversation killer, isn't it? And I just mentioned, hey, we love Jesus, and we want people to love Jesus as well. We want you to love Jesus Oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. We get out of the car. We have conversation later. Look, this lady had revealed her heart on the way there. This lady doesn't really love Jesus because she would have been convicted of several things that she said along the way. But what I realized was that if I were to ask that woman, who does she think Jesus is? He's a good man. He's a good man. And I'm a good person. And we have that in common. We're both good. So he's accepting of me. And I realized what she needed to hear was the judgment of God. The wrath of God that is pending against her if she does not repent and turn away from her sins. She doesn't know who Jesus is. Look, we are flooded with that mentality in our culture of everybody thinking Jesus is good. 
I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus is okay with me. We are fine. No, church. We have to wrestle with the question of who Jesus is and bring the full knowledge of who He is in our conversations and have it bear in this community. So what is, as you're wrestling with who Jesus is, are you basing that off of tidbits of information here and there, sporadically and barely touching your Bible and reading your Bible, just listening to a friend talk about him over here and a friend talking about him over there, reading a meme here, reading a meme there, and going, hey, this is what I think Jesus is. Kind of this hodgepodge Jesus. And maybe you just don't like reading the Bible And so you just rely on other people altogether. Maybe you just rely upon me in the pulpit to tell you about the Bible. But I'll tell you this. Things that I say up here sometimes are wrong. The only thing perfect from this pulpit are the exact words of Scripture. I mess up. But you can't just take my word for it. You need to go and examine my words in light of Scripture yourself. So are you... In the Bible, clearly seeing and knowing Jesus, can you recognize Him? The world is trying to tell us who Jesus is. And I'm saying in the most literal sense, if you saw the article that I shared online in Church Center this week, you have the governor of New York telling us what Jesus, what God is saying regarding vaccine mandates and that she's going to commission the people out as her apostles. I mean, the most heretical and ungodly things she could be saying. But understand, she has a loud voice and she's speaking clearly of who she says Jesus is. What are we doing? What are we saying? And we have to understand the culture is coming out trying to tell the church and trying to tell the world who God is and completely throwing people, basically walking people comfortably into hell. Oh, that this is the way Jesus is. This is what He loves. Yeah, go this way. Don't listen to your pastor. Don't listen to the Bible. I have the right understanding. We have got to know God's Word so we can recognize Him. And we can recognize when those who say they recognize Him are not truly recognizing Him. So who do you say Jesus is? You say He's a good man? I have a humanist friend here in the city. He's a funny guy. He's hilarious. I've shared the gospel with him several times. But he loves the church. He loves the church. And he loves the church because everywhere the church goes, it provides good in the community. As a humanist, all you're wanting to do is just do good things. So he's okay. He, I want more churches, more churches. It's like the brothers being like, Jesus, just go in. More of you in the crowd. More of you in the crowd. This is a damning perspective. This man is going to go to hell if he doesn't believe in Christ. And anyone else who thinks that just serving food and serving clothes and fixing bikes and doing nice things in the community is going to show people who Christ actually is, you are blinded by the goodness. We have to stand out. We must be distinct 
from this false narrative of the church and this false narrative of who Jesus is. We must be ultimately offensive. And I'm not saying you go out and be offensive, but when we speak the Word of God, people take offense to it. And so we have to evaluate as well. When we go into the crowd, is everybody just going to like us all the time? And if so, man, check Check your heart. What are you saying? What is it that you're not saying about Jesus? Is the message you're saying and speaking of the same message a humanist is saying? Your message must be, Jesus is the God-man. He's here to save sinners. Not just do good that can ultimately be replicated by the world. You think he's misleading? Is the the Jesus who calls out sin a Jesus that you cannot get behind? If the world calls on you to obey sin or sinful laws over the laws of God, will you then find Jesus misleading and frustrating? Well, I don't want to be seen as judgmental or harsh. I really want these lost people to like me. Why do you care so much about lost people liking you over obedience and faith to Christ? And understand this, I'm a person who loves interacting with lost people, and I love when people like me, but the the issue is being liked by the world over being liked by God. Now is not the time to talk about Jesus in fear of, of the culture. Now is not the time. We must not pander to culture because we don't want to cause an issue or be an offense or get into a fight about something. A friend told me, Greg, there's no such thing as the persecuted church. Do tell. Nick Ripkin, Insanity of Obedience, speaks of this as well. There's only... The church. And he says this because when you obey the commands of God, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you will be persecuted. If you are not in obedience, then you will bypass persecution. Yes, there's a, there is going to be a distinction between the levels of persecution, but understand this, if we are living in Springfield, Missouri, in this community, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and never finding any sort of opposition to what it is we believe, we have to wonder if we are really living out in obedience and faith to Jesus Christ. Or if we're constantly worried about living in such a way that people like us, that they gravitate towards us, that we don't cause an offense. Jesus didn't go around just offending people, but he lived for the truth. And it caused him to be a rock of offense to everyone around him. We are the church. We need to live in such a way here that if we were to be transplanted on the other side of the globe where persecution is even higher, our message doesn't change. It's the same exact message here as we would preach anywhere else. We must not be in fear of the world, but in fear of Christ. It's really easy to point out the fallen nature 
of all those around Jesus, his brothers, the disciples, the crowd. It's easy to highlight their problems. It's easy to highlight our problems, okay? But we cannot lose sight of this good news. People like the Jews, just the crowds, his disciples, his family, are all the kinds of people that Jesus comes to save. He comes to win them over, not to go to war against them. Jesus has dwelt among sinners in order that he would dwell in them by faith. Jesus coming down among sinners is a great act of love and grace and mercy. He has tabernacled among us. We have great reason to have feast and rejoice. And He has done this so that ultimately He would dwell with us forever, just like His glory dwelled over the tabernacle, just like His glory dwelt over the temple in Solomon's day. So now His glory dwells over us who have faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is the greater story of deliverance. Greater than being delivered from Egypt. Greater than being delivered from all the enemies in the promised land. Greater than being delivered from the Babylonians and the Persians. Greater than all of that. We have been delivered from captivity to sin. Enslavement to sin. Entanglement to sin. And have been brought to freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that He has set us free. Jesus didn't happen upon human history at the wrong time and then accidentally found himself on the cross. Unlike the people who showed up holding s'mores while their neighbor's house was burning down, Jesus never showed up anywhere in the wrong timing, ever. And that's good news for us. God's timing has led us to saving faith in Jesus. He has orchestrated history Timing. The fact that your mom and dad met and your mom got pregnant with you, whether or not you still know your mom and dad is irrelevant. The fact that you've had the relationships you've had, the jobs that you've had, all of those things are on purpose. And if you trace back and look at when you came to saving faith in Jesus, you're realizing what God actually did and how intelligent He is And how sovereign He is to allow you to cross paths that you did and conversations that you did and to think about things that you did in those certain times ultimately so that you would come to know Him. So we can we have reason to praise Him. We have reason to praise Him for the fullness of time. We have reason to give Him thanks that we now have granted access to understand Him more fully. We should hold this so tightly. Hold it so close, so dear. Feast upon it like it's your life depends on it because it does. In the life of your neighbors, your lost friends and family, it depends on the Word of God. They need the Word of God. So we can go then with confidence into all the world, all the world, Speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus, knowing that He is with us always to the end of the age. 
and understanding God's divine providential timing, He may be using you to draw more of His people to Himself. And He draws people to Himself by a clear proclamation, spoken word of God. So speak clearly of who He is. So praise the Father for sending the Son. Praise Him that when the fullness of time would come to redeem us, that we would become adopted sons and daughters of the living God.